This is episode 70 of the Immunology Podcast, Public Outreach with Drs. Akiko Iwasaki and Amy Bernard. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Akiko Iwasaki from Yale and Dr. Amy Bernard from the University of Colorado on the podcast to talk about their work communicating science to the public. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... The AAI 2024 annual meeting will be held between May 3rd and 7th in Chicago, Illinois. AAI President Akiko Iwasaki will kick off the meeting on May 3rd with her address, Learning Immunology from Viral Infections. And Dr. Iwasaki has also organized a special symposium focused on the immune system in tissue homeostasis and disease. And symposium speakers include Yasmin Melkade, Susan Keck, Diane Mattis, and Mark Jenkins, some of them former guests here at the podcast. Don't miss this exciting lineup of top researchers in the field. Visit immunology2024.aai.org for more information. All right. Well, it's the new year. Do you do Thanks. New Year's resolutions? Uh, not really, but, you know, I think that in principle, they're not a bad thing to do. Uh, but then you had to keep them. So uh, do you do do you do New Year's resolutions? Not really. We've never really done that in my family, but, you know. So it's good if you can get it going. I think so. So if you were to do a New Year resolution, Jason, what <sighs> would it be? I don't know. The usual one of lose a little weight is now relevant. So I may do that or get in better shape. Oh, the middle age. Or maybe or maybe get my purple belt in BJJ finally. That would be nice. It's taken forever. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah. Standard middle-aged male stuff that doesn't involve cars or hair transplants. <laughs> I was about to say, buy a Ferrari. Oh, God, no, no. I, I, like, I like driving my cars in the ground and saving all that money for LARP costumes. Get more LARP costumes. But that's basically every year, right? It wouldn't be something special. That's, 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 right. How is this year different? How is this resolution different <laughs> than what I would do anyway? Yeah, it has to be something challenging, right? My resolution for this year is, mm, I don't know. Anything mm -hmm. on the publication front? Going to drop a paper, maybe? Hopefully, yeah. There's a couple. There's one in and ongoing, and there's a project that I really hope will be a paper by the end of the year. So I guess that's that's you know on the, on the professional hope. front. Make it happen. Make the science. I'll do it. Do it. Well, okay, Nike, just do it. Exactly. Because it's famously easy to write papers and just get them done. Just but I'll try. <laughs> the science gods are not fickle. Don't worry. Oh gosh. So. Well, but in any case, uh, a New Year's resolution is to keep doing the podcast. So why don't we write, jump right into it? You know, and I'm ready to go here. I have a new year and a new antibiotic. Oh. Oh, segue. <laughs> Starting off strong here. So this paper's in Nature. A new antibiotic traps lipopolysaccharide in its intermembrane transporter. First author is Karanbir Pahil. And last authors are Andrew Cruz and Daniel Connie. Uh, it came out, let's see here, the corrected form came out January 10th. They have used that and published January 3rd. So 
high level, uh, we are running out of antibiotics for nasty organisms. One of those nasty organisms is actinobacter that's carbapenem resistant. There is a new antibiotic on the block, new kid on the block. This antibiotic, which I don't have its formal name here, it's a new macrolide. This has been making the rounds in infectious disease areas for being able to kill a carbapenem-resistant actinobacter. So one of the very nasty hospital infections. And this paper shows how, we know it works, but this paper goes into the mechanism of it and also establishes why it doesn't work in uh, E. coli, which is another nasty bug. So you're mostly worried about gram negatives, right? Because the gram negatives have this giant shell of LPS that really prevents drugs from entering. And the way the, this macrolide style antibiotic works is it binds to the lipopolysaccharide transport chain and prevents the LPS from getting to the outer membrane, out of the membrane and out. Now, it doesn't kill the cells by weakening the membrane. It kills the cells, which they talk about here, by having toxic accumulation of the LPS and, you know, protomolecules in the bacteria itself. So it's bactericidal, yay, which is awesome. And they demonstrate very resoundingly in here, they do a lot of structure. This is a structure paper, which means I'm going to gesture wildly at Brenda with my hands and no one will be able to see it. No, um, what it uh, means I'm going to describe this pretty quickly for part of this, which is essentially they identify the moieties it binds to. These lipid transport proteins make a complex, it binds to that complex. But interestingly, the antibiotic binds to a complex that has LPS on it already and then holds it in place and locks it in that confirmation, preventing the, the chain from progressing. So they established that with SPR, which is surface plasma resonance and some other techniques along with the crystal structure. And they do cryo EM as well because they have trouble crystallizing it to establish that. So that's one part. It binds to an existing thing. It doesn't like block it from binding, the LPS from binding. Secondly, E. coli LPS, actinobacter LPS don't matter. This, this works just fine. So then they establish, well, what's the difference? Well, the biggest difference in LPS, LPS isn't that different from organism to organism. But these LBTs, these lipopolysaccharide transporters, aren't that homologous in organism to organism over time. And that's where they see the mutations. They identify key residues that prevent binding of E. coli to the, the prevent this drug from binding to E. coli that are different than the, what is in actinobacter. So they're like, you know, now that we understand this, we can start doing, you know, drug modifications to get it to work. So that's kind of where they say they're going to go next from this paper. The other thing they do is they establish there are some escape mutations here that they do find that, you know, if you mutate this or that residue, you lose the binding properties, but some of those are lethal. Almost all of them they were able to find are either lethal to the bacteria or um, prevent the bacteria from growing a priori or very well or make it much more susceptible to other antibiotics. So the point being the default mutate your way out at this point for actinobacter seems pretty limited with this antibiotic. Not that it couldn't eventually happen, but they did a bunch of mutations and they couldn't it was hard for the bacteria to survive the mutation intact or not just be then obliterated by other antibiotics as a result. 
So that that's promising. This is this this antibiotic has made the rounds um, of, as I said, clinical medicine recently is something very promising that can come out here pretty soon uh, for these nasty hospital infections. So that was cool. And we got the structural biology, which makes me happy because biochemistry rocks. <laughs> that's very interesting. Of course, you know, antibiotics are such a huge need. What would be kind of um particular disease that is caused by an Actinobacter bacteria? Oh, so I mean, it's either UTIs or sepsis. So these are organisms that can exist typically in your gut. And, you know, your gut can colonize your urethra and your bladder. And we don't want to talk about how that happens, but it's usually a hygiene issue of some form. Even not, not bad hygiene, just it happens, right? And then uh, you can have a gut infection, or you can have a bone marrow transplant with a leaky gut, or pick something, and then that gets into your bloodstream, and you have a nasty bloodstream inception with mm. bacteremia and sepsis. And then uh, you can't kill it because you don't have antibiotics for it, and then you die. Okay. Straightforward enough. So this isn't like, oh, airborne random. This is like, you know, gut commensal flora that you really don't want to let out of the barn into your blood. And usually they don't go there, but if they do bad, it's like, we're all surrounded by E. coli. You don't want E. coli in your blood. For sure. We don't want E. coli in your blood. Um, or your hamburger. Or your hamburger. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, so for my story, I, I have to admit, I have cheated 2024. I'm not ready to move on because there this of this there's some stories that came out in December of last year and I just could not bring myself to ignore them uh, in favor for the newer models. So I decided that I'm gonna discuss the papers I'm gonna bring is some papers that I thought were very interesting for 2023, and then I get some closure for this year. So I hope you can bear with me here. But I promise they're worth it. Are you ready? I'm ready to not move on yet, although I will mock you for it. All right. So the first, uh, the first uh, paper I want to I want to bring to your attention is called "Acquisition of Suppressive Function by Conventional T Cells Limits Anti-Tumor Immunity Upon T-Reg Depletion." And I have to say that the, the title is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, this was published in Science Immunology. Uh, and the first author is Sarah Whiteside. And the corresponding author is Rahul Road Choudhury, and they are from uh, the University of Cambridge. And I like this paper because um, they try to tackle a very important question in 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 our understanding of immunotherapy against cancer. So we know that T-Rex, as much as I like them, as much as I respect them, they're usually detrimental for 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 tumor immunity. Uh, for obvious reasons, you want an active immune response. And if you get T-Rex, you know, they're in the way, they're problematic. And there's many studies that have, you know, shown that the ratios between regulatory T-cells and effector T-cells uh, are correlated with prognosis and stuff like that. Um, so there's been a lot of interest uh, on using uh, immunotherapies that target T-Rex in, in tumors and hopefully remove them from the tumors. And hopefully this will result in a release of, of, of T-cell functionality and, and, uh, you know, and effector T-cell function. Um, and so they, they, they mentioned there's certain treatments such as monoclonal antibodies against CD25, which is very highly expressed in regulatory T-cells. 
um, um, some uh, the use of of, dif of targeted uh, diphtheria toxin IL-2 complexes that would also kind of predominantly kill uh, regulatory T cells. Uh, and also some other markers have, that are have been you know, shown to be associated with tumor infiltrating T-Rex, such as CCR4 antibodies targeting it. Uh, although they seem to deplete T-Rex, they don't seem they fail to to provide a clinical benefit. Um, so what they did in this in this work is they 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 try to look into a mouse model to understand why if you get rid of the T-Rex, why is it not, things not getting better? Because you really, that's kind of the expectation. So there must be something. So what, what they did basically is they, uh, gen they use a mouse model in which they could deplete regulatory T-cells in the tumor. So this uh, uh, T-Rex, uh, you know, specifically T-Rex expressing the diphtheria toxin receptor, and then they put diphtheria toxin and then uh, voila. And um, they um, they you know they they do this in the in, in, in mice in several conditions and they study the uh, effect on 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 thesis in general. And what they see, so I will try to be brief. Of course, is a they, they do a lot of I think I think it's a very nice paper. It's not too long, not too short. I think it's a Goldilocks stone uh, for my attention and my interest. So good job, guys. Um, basically, what they see is that although the T cells T-Rex are gone, there is still a population of suppressive cells that apparently uh, there is derived from conventional T-cells that once they don't have the T-Rex anymore, there's a certain amount profile of, of originally conventional cells end up uh, acquiring a suppressive profile. Um, so they show that these conventional cells start expressing a lot of the co-inhibitory molecules that are usually, well, they're often associated with, with T-Rex. There's always a lot of gray areas here. Conventional T-Rex are like activated cells, but uh, they express higher uh, levels of certain uh, molecules such as CDLA4, ICOs, which are, you know, also associated with T-Rex function. And more importantly, if they take the cells, they actually show that they can suppress the activation of other cells in vitro. So they do seem to have a suppressive function that they acquire only if they are they found themselves in the absence of T-Rex. Um, so kind of long story short, they double down on two uh, important things. On the one hand, they show that there's a particular uh, chemokine receptor, CCR8, that seems to not only um, identify regulatory T cells with high suppressive capacity in tumors, and this has been kind of described more or less. But this these conventional suppressive T cells also seem to be characterized by CCR8. And uh, when they when they kind of uh, looked into the mechanism of, of of this suppression, one of the things that this uh, conventional suppressive, you know, newly suppressive T cells do is uh, compensatory regulatory T cells, they express IL-10. And using IL-10 knockout models, they show that a lot of the suppressive function of these cells is actually mediated by IL-10 expression by conventional T cells upon the absence of you know, normal regulatory T cells after their depletion. Um, so hopefully this helps understand where are um, 
this this why the absence of this you know the traditional suppressor seems to um, correlate or seems to not result in a in a better uh, prognosis. And this is all work in mice. They do look at some human data. They have some non small cell lung cancer uh, data sets. And they also, and they use this CCR8 marker as to actually identify the suppressive conventional cells. And they see that uh, to some extent, uh, CCR, CCR8 conventional cells that are expressing a lot of CD25, kind of mimicking this T-Rex phenotype, they they are found in the tumors of patients with with non small lung cell cancer, and and, and this might indicate that they are uh, in a way interfering with immune response as well. So you know, on the one hand, it's like you get rid of the T Rex, and then there's somebody else that just fills the void, and you're back to square one. How annoying does that sound? It sounds like suppression is inevitable, which I'm sure is uh, not great. Yeah, so you will be suppressed. Yeah, I guess you really want to prevent that. You know, autoimmunity at all costs, and then that is, this is the cost. Whatever you do, you want to regulate. Got to keep things in check, balance in all things. Interesting. Well, I don't know. You just shot hope a little bit, but that's fine. Well, they do say, so wait, wait. Actually, you, it's good that you say that because they do make the point that maybe instead of depleting T-Rex, you want to deplete the CCR8 positive cells. And therefore, you will be both catching highly suppressive T-Rex, but also this potentially suppressive conventional cells. They seem both to fall on the category of CCR8 positive cell. So that is their proposal. I will entertain this notion. Hmm. Or, or use IL-10 inhibition together with this. Because then if... That never all, comes wrong. <laughs> No, yeah. well, but they do have some models in which they combine the depletion of T-Rex with IL-10 receptor uh, inhibition, and then they can uh, really improve tumor control more than, uh, yeah, they, they can actually reduce tumor growth in, in, in contrast with just depleting the T-Rex with a T-Rotoxin in, in the mouse model. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about, you know, cancer a little bit too here. Uh, this is a cell paper whose title describes pretty much the whole thing. It came out January 4th. It's titled, A TCF4-Dependent Gene Regulatory Network Confers Resistance to Immunotherapies in Melanoma. First author is Joanna Posniak. Last author is um, two of them, or three of them are available for cor correspondence. Florian Rambo, Oliver Betcher, and Jean-Christophe Marine. All right, so this is looking at melanoma and particularly what fails immune checkpoint blockade early in drug-naive human samples, and they correlate this with a lot of mouse studies. They take some human studies, some stuff that's kind of an existing set they're mining for different things, and with these human samples, they find that there's this mesenchymal-like state, MES as they call it, mesenchymal-like state, where that that exists and we know that an epithelial to mesenchymal transitions tends to be bad for cancer prognosis right so they thought this could be a bad actor but 
they in this paper, and I'll give the punchline and then talk about how they show it. They show that these are this state is enriched in lesions that are receiving treatment that are refractory to immune checkpoint blockade. Things look the same at baseline, but after a quick immune checkpoint blockade early on in treatment, you can see what's starting to be killed and not. And these cells are enriched in those failing treatment. Um, but what they do here is a pretty tour de force single cell RNA seq, but really, really trying to split out groups. When you get these human samples, right, you get mesenchymal cells and fibroblasts and other stuff that's in the mix with all the cancer cells. And so they were really trying to figure out, well, is this mesenchymal markers, is that a can that's showing up on this barcode for a cell? Is that is that a fibroblast or is that a cancer cell? And so they look and do a lot of work looking at mutational burden and not just chromosomal aberrations, which are uncommon in melanoma, but just general transcriptional mutational burden, which is where you see a lot of melanoma issues with mutations gone wild is in the transcriptome, like just wild insanity, and use that as a measure alongside these specific markers to understand that this is a mesenchymal-like or, you know, transitioning cell, right? And so they were able to split, and that's where they really, the, the big technology claim and work here is they're able to get better resolution of the tumors, both by first doing some fancy RNA-seq work, single cell, but then they go back and do some RNA scope, which is in situ hybridization for, you know, kind of like fancy immunohistochemistry, but with RNA probes for transcripts alongside actual immune histochemistry because they're compatible with each other to really say, no, this is a fibroblast and this cell here has all the cancer markers and is indeed a mesenchymal-like transition with some of the same fibroblast genes. So they do all this resolution to really vet what they're showing. And that's really the tour de force of the paper. And so then they find, after they look at this, the transcriptional profiles, they find that TCF4 is um, really driving this. And then doing so suppresses the melanocyte program as well as the antigen presenting programs. So this MESS program, TCF4 pushes MESS while simultaneously but separately. So they established that if you just drive a MESS with other genes through some mouse studies, it doesn't do it. But TCF4 independently, it's a hallmark, right? So high MESS means you have more TCF4 going on and more TCF4 means you suppress the melanocyte and antigen presenting programs. And then they show that if you target TCF4 expression through drugs or RNA knockdown or just genetic editing, you increase the sensitivity to immune checkpoint blockade and targeted therapies. So they're showing it can be an adjunct to immuno check, in, in, in checkpoint blockades in melanomas to make it more efficacious in those people who are non-responders. And there you go. All right. I mean, anything that you can do in order to improve their response to melanomas is good. Yeah, melanoma's mm. a nasty little bugger. But I think that, it, that I really like, after they got the resolution to say this cell versus that cell, they're able to deep dive their data and get mm -hmm. some of these hallmark markers and then make some clinical insights from it. So that was really cool. So, but then they do, they do spatial. They, yeah. Most, do you think this is really, what is the advantage to having done single cell, for example? So they can mark each cell and say, is this a fibroblast or is this a mess cancer cell? And they can see that this program is upregulated in the mess cancer cells. But they had to do a work to separate the resolution by single cell of fibroblast from mess cell. 
And then they do the tissue work on top of it to show, yeah, these are actually distinct from each other. Like within a cell, they can see these gene markers that are hallmarks of mess are up all in one cell. But this other thing that's just a, you know, fibroblast marker is not up or keratinocyte or what have you, right? So they're able to split that up and show that they do see separate populations from tumor, tumor immunohistochemistry slash RNA scope, as well as by single cell to show they are spatially distinct. That's the real question, right? Are they actual spatial distinct things or not? Okay, so to end up, if we're going to talk about two of the fours, I have one for you. Um, also, <clears throat> a paper from last year, but I, w I promise it's the last. I will get over 2023. But I, I really liked it and I really want to share with it. Um, this paper is called Dictionary of Immune Responses to Cytokines at Single Cell Resolution. Uh, it was published in Nature on December 6th. <laughs> uh, and first author is Ankui, and, and uh, from uh, last author, Nir uh, Hakohen. Uh, from Broad Institute um, in Boston, in Cambridge. And um, as the title suggests, uh, what they did here is uh, really a very systematic approach to understanding cytokine effects on, on immune cells, on, on various cells. They, the, the authors basically took many, many, many mice and injected with many, many cytokines one at a time. And then they isolated many, many lymph nodes and the cells within these lymph nodes. And they uh, analyzed them with single-cell RNA-seq in order to really establish what each individual cytokine or kind of signal molecule, those have other things that are not cytokines, affects each of the different uh, cell types within a, limb, a draining lymph node. So also a fairly early time point, four hours after injection. Uh, so in, in the numbers are as follows. Uh, so there were 86 different cytokines uh, injected, three mice per each cytokine. Um, and they basically analyze a lot of cells uh, in, a, in an effort to characterize the response of each individual cell type to each cytokine. And I think in general, uh, as uh, it's, it's, I think I see this mostly as a great tool, which they uh, built into a website in which you can kind of look into your cell of interest and the kind of uh, signatures that uh, each cytokine generates. Um, and uh, it's, it's very complex, but they really try to uh, look into, compare, you know, the, 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 the kind of um, signatures that they got with what is already known. So they, 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 during the publication, they kind of discuss some specific uh, examples. Uh, so they uh, do show that, you know, there's some cytokines are, you know, affecting many cell types, case in point, uh, interferons. They see that they affect, you know, a, a wide variety of, of cells, which is kind of reasonable. Interferons are usually uh, directed at um, all types of cells. But then they have some other cytokines. I think they made the example of IL-1 uh, and, uh, and IL-1-alpha and IL-1-beta, that they are, you know, a little bit more selective in which are the kind of cells that actually respond to the cytokines um, uh, and uh, how 
different cell types to the same cytokines uh, can, so different cell types generate different profiles based on what cytokines they are being stimulated with. Moreover, they also, also know, try to analyze which of the responses that you, they see are secondary. Sometimes you have a cytokine that activates a cell type and then that cell type generates other, uh, uh, other cytokines that then you see the effect on a third uh, or a second cell type. So they also look, uh, and I think uh, an example of that is uh, interferon gamma that is produced by NK cells as a response uh, to IL-2, IL-12, IL-15. And then you, what you see is that interferon gamma signatures in other cells, but not, it's not because these cells have the receptors for the original cytokines, but because they are re responding to secondary, secondary um, uh, uh, signals. So I think that in general, uh, the paper itself is very solid. It's very interesting. I, I find it a really cool um, was one resource. So I'm kind of trying to dig into the, the website and to see if you know, for my favorite cells or the cells I'm working with, whether I can use this information for, you know, developing my own, my own uh, experiments. Um, what they do make, so they, they, they try to make signatures. Well, one of the things they, they kind of try to derive from this data is if you have uh, uh, the, the uh, immune cell polarization, or so you have transcriptomic data of, 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 a, cell, of a population of cells, try to kind of um, show which are the cytokines these cells are responding to that will bring up that transcriptome. So they have an algorithm that allows them, they call it immune response enrichment analysis, IREA. Uh, and this is, uh, a soft, this is a software that they have available. And so it helps you, um, it helps use a statistical test to assess uh, the enrichment of, of, of cell polarization or cytokine signature in transcriptomes. And this kind of helps you, would help you understand which kind of signals these cells are receiving. So I think in general, I was mostly, I see it mostly as um, an interesting uh, tool. I was, of course, a lot of work. <laughs> so, congrats to the authors. Um, and I think that you know, any people thinking about cell communications would probably benefit from taking a look at, at this paper and maybe you know, learning something. So, have you applied it yet to your research, Brenda, or is that a this week thing or this weekend even? Because you know, postdoc life. Yeah, no, not yet, but I'm definitely, you know, I, to be honest, I'm still understanding how to use the website for the questions I need. So I need to look a little bit closer into the instructions of how to use the, the, the website. But uh, I think I definitely want to because I do have questions and if this can help me narrow down. You want answers, right, Brenda? I you want answers. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well... You know, the public also likes answers, and we're going to be speaking to Dr. Akiko Iwasaki and Amy Bernard in a moment about science communication with the public. But before we get to that, are you looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology? We'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News, featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry policy and science news. Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their field while saving time. Subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. For our first episode of 2024, we are joined by two very special guests. and uh, We're going to talk about a very special topic. 
Today's topic is science outreach. And we have in the show joining us uh, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki from uh, Yale University and Dr. Amy Bernard from uh, the University of Colorado. Um, they have, you know, a lot of uh, their own work in, in research and lecturing at their respective universities, but we're going to focus today about their very interesting experience uh, talking science to the general public. And I think this is something that is very close to many of us, especially during the COVID pandemic, how important it becomes for uh, immunologists and people with biomedical knowledge to effectively uh, share uh, the latest research with the public and influence a little bit of public discourse. So thank you so much, uh, Akiko and Amy, for joining us today. I'm looking forward to our conversation and to hearing about your experiences in, in public outreach. Thank you for having us. So. If I may get started, uh, uh, so in the case of, of, of Professor Iwasaki, you, of course, have a very uh, impressive career. You're a prof sterling professor at Yale. You did your, you're originally from Japan, but you did your PhD and your undergrad in, in, in Canada, you, in Toronto. You, after a fairly short postdoc at the NIH, you became a professor at Yale. And uh, besides having very extensive uh, research and, and particularly in, in, in viral immunology, you became very uh, well known and kind of a household name during the COVID pandemic in which you uh, put a lot of effort into explaining the latest research, into reaching out to the public. It was a time of a lot of uncertainty. And I think many of us, myself included, uh, very, very much uh, enjoyed or kind of felt uh, reassured by your outreach and your work. So maybe if I may, could we start a little bit with how your experience has been in public outreach and what motivates you to do this work, which is uh, not a, a small amount of work. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I've always been interested in public outreach. Um, you know, as scientists, I think we have duties to inform the public about evidence-based information and to help people understand uh, enough uh, about the, for example, the immune system to make uh, informed decision for, for them and for their family members. So um, I've always, this has always been my interest, but the COVID-19 pandemic certainly um, sort of enhanced my ability to do so. Um, and part of it had to do with uh, the fact that I joined Twitter, uh, now X, I guess, um, you know, in, in uh, just prior to COVID, uh, I was tweeting mostly about research and also uh, women in STEM um, issues and, you know, uh, countering toxic, toxic culture of academia. This was uh, something I was already tweeting. Uh, so I had some, um, you know, follower base to begin with, but during the pandemic, I really um, felt, um, you know, that this was our duty to communicate um, important messages to the public. So I use that platform a lot to uh, try to educate the public about the basics of the immune system and, you know, some of the misinformation and disinformation that was coming out throughout the pandemic. I also tried to counter those with um, proper information and knowledge-based, um, evidence-based um, information. And how about you, Amy? Uh, the same question, but how have you gotten uh, the deep dive into science communication in the last few years? Yeah, so I agree with Akiko that as a scientist, it's I feel it's a duty or responsibility. 
the outreach to the public. I think that um, it's really important to make connections with the community and to um, be seen as a source of expertise or someone who is willing to answer questions. Um, I, like Akiko, I did this less less prominently <laughs> um, before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, um, hosted a lot of um, online webinars and seminars and um, community conversations. Um, I worked with Latino as well as African-American advocates around the Denver and Colorado area to do what we called casual questions about vaccines or the immune system. Um, all of those were mostly on Zoom, but I, I think that just making connections with community and being able to listen to um, people's concerns and questions. Um, as Akiko mentioned, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy theories and things that I think some people um, find on the internet and maybe that's a little bit easier to digest or um, comes across as more relatable in some ways. And I think that um, as scientists, if we make ourselves available to the community, um, we can start to become a source of information or an access point to answer questions and to listen to people's fears um, and just try to, to answer and help them to make informed decisions about their health and their life choices. Um, vaccines and, you know, Pexlovid and, you know, there's so many different things that the immune system covers. And so, so I think it's a responsibility also. So I had a follow-up on the misinformation you guys kind of both talked at. So there, there's a saying, I'm going to get this wrong, but the notion that a good lie spreads a lot faster than a, you know, a difficult truth and that you can, everyone can know the truth. One really you know, compelling lie takes it over and you can't get it back. How do you guys combat that? So I can uh, start the answer, I guess, uh, from my perspective. Uh, how is a very difficult question, Jason, and uh, I haven't gotten it perfect at all, <laughs> but I have done some trial and error. And essentially, um, uh, you know, misinformation and disinformation do spread a lot quicker than the truth. And the truth is also difficult to ascertain uh, during the early phase of the pandemic when we didn't really understand, um, you know, how the immune system reacts to different things like vaccines and the virus and, you know, complications. So um, in the absence of real knowledge, uh, we can only speculate uh, what might be the, the, the truth. But that is probably uh, closer to the, the, the real fact than uh, some of these sort of misinformation that was circulating. Um, so what I've done is to kind of um, use the knowledge base and speculate on uh, what is the most likely outcome of vaccination, for example, um, in, in pregnant women. Uh, because pregnant women weren't included in the trials, and therefore we had a sort of absence of information about what might happen. and But with all the knowledge that we understand from prior uh, work, uh, we would speculate that, um, you know, it, it's beneficial for pregnant women to get the vaccine because uh, getting COVID during pregnancy is a, a real high risk uh, for patients. And so, you know, we, we wrote a um, op-ed on New York Times and, you know, published those. And, you know, that's sort of one way to get 
like public message across is to utilize uh, traditional media that has a lot of readership. Um, we've also done actually research to combat uh, some of this misinformation. We've done some analyses of the um, you know antibodies from people who are getting the vaccines to show that there really isn't any evidence of those antibodies interfering with pregnancy and infertility and things that were being uh, spread at that time. So, you know, both uh, by public communication as well as by doing the science and, and showing that it really has no um, evidence. I think that that's how I sort of dealt with it. One thing that I often find problematic um, when it comes to sharing science to the public, especially when it's very critical, I think the COVID uh, um, situation was a very good example of how difficult it is to, when you really need to get the message across, but sometimes you're not ready because it, the science is not there. So I have a, a personal experience um, what ha that happened when the, the, the vaccines were rolling out. And um, as we know, an immunologist, uh, like within my community back in my home country, you know, I was a person with a PhD and I was also like talking to my family and my friends and trying to do a small little bit of answering questions to my friends. So everybody was very, very anxious and very nervous. Should we take the vaccine? Is this a good idea? Is it actually working? Which vaccine? In Argentina, we had a lot of issues with which vaccine were we getting? Were we getting Sputnik? Is that a good vaccine? Is that better than nothing? And one of the things that uh, happened was that in the very early times of when this the response is this um, thrombocytopenia response that that is a now well known side effect of of, of adenoviral vaccines was coming out. Uh, at the beginning, it was very very difficult to to pick up the the noise the signal from the noise, and I made the mistake at the very beginning of saying no, that's definitely that's conspiracy theories. This is, you know, take the vaccine. This is not a reason to stop this. This is not a signal. This is not real. Just take the vaccine. And of course, history proved me wrong in the end. So my question, so what I'm aiming at is how do we, uh, how does a scientist uh, properly address uncertainty uh, while being firm about what is, you know, what is actual science and what it's not and when the stakes are so high how do you what is the best way of going around this so i think that you know that's something that i i think a lot of scientists do all the time when we talk about because of the scientific process and the scientific method a lot of scientists including myself if i you know I'll read the literature the use of the word always or never both of those words we don't really like to use because we're always following the data. So um, in conversations early with the vaccine, I was telling people vaccines over history have proven to be safe and effective. Um, historically, they save lives or prevent serious harm. In my opinion, because of all of the clinical trials and you know safety um, you know, vaccines are held to higher safety standards than most other therapeutics just because they're given to otherwise healthy people. So I would tell people, in, in my opinion, as a scientist, knowing about the scientific method, the process, clinical trials, everything that vaccines go through, I would recommend 
that we use them, but that we also keep aware when we, we read the literature, we, we add more information as it comes in um, and just continue to be using, I would say, you know, relevant and appropriate sources. That's reputable sources. That's something that I, I think we need to emphasize with the general public. Not everyone, that's the, that's part of the issue is that not everyone can, you know, determine what is a reputable source versus what is not. And that that's part of where the mis and disinformation trap comes into. Um, so I would CDC, you know, there are, um, you know, all these places you can go or Yale <laughs> to look for good information. So, um, you know, that's, I think that's what I was trying to tell people. And one of the things that I think scientists is really, it's kind of challenging for us is because we're I feel like we don't say never or always just because we know we shouldn't. We're always looking at new data. Sometimes people will say to me, well, how come you're not 100% certain? I'm like, well, guess what? It's the scientific method. I'm always taking in new information. So I will probably not ever tell you I am 100% without a doubt, absolutely certain it will always be this way. Because if something new comes in to change my mind, I'm open to that new piece of data. Do you think we as scientists and the CDC and other groups did a generally good job during the pandemic? Or are there lessons that we could have learned, like especially as time went on? I, th I think I mean, my impression is that very early on, I think we were pretty good. But I think as it went on into months and months more, I'm wondering if there's lessons you guys think that we could have learned from for the next time in terms of communication. Yeah, I think um, both kind of, you know, addressing your question, Jason, and also uh, following up on Amy's points, um, I, I think scientists have to communicate, um, you know, fact-based information to the extent that we understand them, right? So um, some level of humility and some level of um, uncertainty should be injected into the messages. And this is not what the public wants to hear. They want to hear 100% this and 100%. But it's dangerous because, uh, you know, if we said that vaccines are safe in most people, instead of saying vaccines are safe, period, uh, then some of these issues that we now understand there's a rare cases of um, vaccine associated, um, you know, pathologies, uh, that are now being sort of brought to light, like myocarditis for the mRNA vaccines and thermocytopenia for the adenovirus vaccines. And, and, you know, even though it may be low number compared to the actual COVID um, infection, uh, this is something that if we said that they're absolutely um, safe and that you absolutely, you know, can take it without any concern. Um, I, I think that type of messaging has hurt scientists same thing with uh, masking and you know isolation. I mean, I think if we if we can sort of explain to the public uh, that you know we just don't understand how this virus transmits uh, in the very beginning, and we think that masking uh, is helpful, but we don't know yet, um, and we just sort of revise the message as we understand science better. Uh, it, it may have been better than sort of saying, "Oh, masks are not needed." And then all of a sudden, masks are needed. You know, I think the mixed messages um, without any nuance uh, it is confusing to the public. I think also a, di a difficult concept to share or like to m make people keep in their minds is that you're not comparing 
uh, getting whatever you you know a side effect from a vaccination to being healthy, you need to compare vaccinating against having COVID because the chances of getting uh, some kind of, of vascular problem with COVID are many folds higher than from any vaccine and also the kinds of of of, of disease of pathologies you can develop from COVID. So it's not you're not comparing you know the inconvenience of having a mask or the risk of putting a vaccine with being healthy. You're, you're, you need to weigh it against the risk of having a fairly problematic disease. And I think that's probably, from my perspective, what has been the, the, the biggest problem in transmitting. Uh, but I think that's a very human situation, right? I think there's the, even a name for it. It's like inaction. One thing is people usually compare it to doing nothing and things stay in the way they are, which usually they don't. That's absolutely right. So the the risk benefit calculation really needs to include, you know, infections versus vaccination versus doing nothing. And if you're lucky, you won't get infected. But most people, um, we got exposed, even if you're careful. So absolutely. So coming back to um, or kind of going forward on what you uh, both of you are doing uh, in terms of public outreach. Uh, so. Uh, Amy, you are also a fellow podcaster. Uh, you have a, a you so talking about formats and the way that uh, scientists can reach out to the public. So here we have a podcast where we are mostly aimed at kind of colleagues. So uh, how has been your experience using a podcast for the general public? Uh, and what kind of what have you learned and what would you recommend if somebody else would like to start such a thing? Um, yeah, so I teamed up with a, um, a graduate school friend of mine who's an MD, PhD in New York. And um, the reason why we did that during the pandemic was that we found that separately, we were getting questions from anyone <laughs> and everyone about vaccines and SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. So we would be emailing each other all the time or texting like, you know, what about this? What about this? And a lot of it was disinformation or, you know, um, things that were making people fearful. So we just thought we would team up and start a podcast to answer these questions where we could say we have a podcast for that. And instead of <laughs> answering, you know, 50 different people, um, we could. So we call it's help make it make sense with Dr. Tony, Tony Esselin and, and Amy and um, we've we've had very good, I think, um, feedback from that. I think that people will tune in. We do make it mostly for the general public. We try not to use jargon. We try to come up with fun, engaging analogies or stories. So making things relatable. If we have to use jargon or terms, we try to break it down. Um, so that that's actually been, I think, really. It's been fun. Um, you know, I, I wish that we didn't have a pandemic. <laughs> To start this podcast, but it was a silver lining in the sense that I think it's another way for us to get um, some questions from the general public answered. Um, I also do TikTok. Um, I'm at Immuninja. I don't have very many followers, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's another way. I'll just put up little one minute videos about you know what are B cells, you know what are antibodies, um, you know antibodies are like cash, and <laughs> I make <laughs> like little silly analogies. So um, I think that trying to put ourselves out there on a lot of different platforms in way that ways that are relatable 
and um, use analogies or metaphors or stories that make things relatable, I think can really help the general public kind of feel like they're part of science and that they're not, we get a lot of questions. And I think people aren't scared of asking us questions because they feel like we're we're talking um, in you know plain English without jargon. So that's been really fun. So I know another initiative uh, that AAI started recently was a public awareness campaign. I don't know, Kiko, if you could speak to uh, what that campaign is and what you guys are trying to do there. Yeah, sure. So uh, at the AI, we have decided to uh, raise more awareness about the immune system um, in general public by launching this um, public awareness campaign called Immunology Explained. And uh, this campaign basically uh, tries to educate the public about what the immune system is and how it functions and how it you know, helps us fight off infections and uh, tumors and cancers. Um, and at the same time, when it goes awry, it can cause diseases like autoimmunity. Um, and we're basically taking um, this very complex field of immunology into small sort of digestible um, bite pieces to, to explain, you know, things from all the way from innate immunity to adaptive immunity and what the cells um, that perform these functions are. Um, and then looking at, you know, how the immune system changes with age and what that means to people and how, uh, what kind of precautions one might have to take as we um, age. Um, and there are many other sort of topics that we want to cover over time. But these are the some of the, the first things that we're doing. And uh, there are already videos up there in, on the website um, that AI members um, are contributing to really talking about what is the immune system. Can you repeat for our listeners, what is the name of the campaign and what is the website they can find it in? Sure. Um, the name of the campaign is called Immunology Explained. And uh, you can find it at immunologyexplained.aai.org. Uh, it's a whole website. It's very um, pleasing to look at, and it's easy to kind of, you know, click on various videos uh, to try to understand, you know, what the immune system is and what cells are involved and what it does. Um, and it's a visual and also um, a video-based um, education uh, platform. I think that's very important, right? Uh, we already mentioned a little bit about how, what are the strategies to, to reach out? So making a, a website that is easy to navigate, that is aimed at, at people and, and at kind of regular uh, citizens and that it's supported or is backed by a, such an important institution as the AAI is, is very important. Uh, I was wondering, maybe we can just, you also mentioned other things, for example, using formats that are um, directed against different uh, target people, for example, TikTok, I guess, for that Gen Y, uh, not us, clearly not. <laughs> no, the Gen Z, sorry, I got my my alphabet wrong. Um, so using uh, other platforms, is is there anything else, any other uh, tips or any other ways that, so also uh, one more thing is maybe using reputable publication uh, magazines like you have done, Akiko, uh, publishing. Uh, also, you have, uh, I've seen interviews with you in The Guardian or oh, newspapers. What other, any other uh, recommendation or the other ways that people can uh, communicate science effectively to non-scientists that you would like to just mention before we wrap up the conversation? 
Well, I mean, there are just so many different ways. Um, you know, one is, uh, as Amy mentioned, uh, really connecting with the community. And because most people make decisions based on friends and neighbors, uh, as opposed to some someone lecturing them uh, on an internet. So um, connection at the community level is really important. And just to put a plug in for the Immunology Explained um, program, uh, there are um, a lot of opportunities for people within the AI and outside to contribute to this campaign. Uh, there are champions um, that, that uh, I guess over a hundred people have uh, volunteered to champion for this campaign uh, where we are um, sort of explaining this uh, to the level, uh, at the level of uh, personal engagement. Uh, with people in the community. So that's the other thing, uh, in addition to social media and traditional media, that we can really do um, by connecting with people that we know. One other thing, I agree, I completely agree with that. One other thing that I would add is for about 10 years now, um, I will go to the state capitol and I will testify um, in support of pro-science legislation or in opposition of things that would um, decrease public health or are essentially against or anti-science. So I do a lot of advocacy in the sense of um, going down to the state capitol, being, being on panels, testifying. Um, I'll talk to legislatures. There's usually at least one or two afternoons a year where there's a, a local, um, it's called Immunize Colorado, that will... Um, have uh, members like myself go and talk to legislatures about different pro-science or pro-vaccine um, topics. Um, so that's, I think, another way that scientists can play a role in talking to legislatures. A lot of them are not scientists. Most of them are <laughs> need help <laughs> understanding the science. So, that, so that's one, I think, another thing that we can do. And um, I, that also influences policy. That's a, that's a big piece, you know, that's a, a much larger um, piece of the puzzle. So I would recommend that too, if people are interested. That's, that's so good that you bring that up. I think that is, I mean, now that you mentioned it, I, my, my mind goes like, of course, that is, very important because, as you said, of course, politicians are not characterized by or are not elected because of their uh, wide knowledge in the many and various fields of science and technology. And they definitely need people to help them navigate and make good decisions, even if you're if you want to be non-cynical about it in the best case scenario, they still need help. Right. Um, and as a fact, as a matter of fact, the AI does have some programs related to to this, right, in which they take people to well, in the U.S., right, to Capitol uh, Hill. And um, I think that's very interesting. And I'm pretty sure that other countries have similar, uh, there are similar paths. Um, I should see, I think, well, really depends on the country, but that's very important uh, to to provide help to lawmakers uh, that oftentimes, yeah, you kind of know it all, can you? Well, to wrap up then, where can we find you both on all of these socials or websites or pods or what have you? Kiko, do you want to go first and then Amy? Sure. I'm only pretty much on X um, and my handle is at viruses immunity. So if you want to find me there, um, I'm, I'm there. And, and I've been banned from TikTok um, by my teenage daughters. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> Amy, you're very brave. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, 
my daughter encouraged me to go on to TikTok. <laughs> um, so on TikTok, I am at Immuninja. Um, and then the podcast that I co-host is called Help Make It Make Sense with Dr. Tony, T-O-N-I, and Dr. Amy, A-I-M-E-E. Um, I am not on X. I well, I I watch X. I I follow, but I I don't I don't post much there. I'm more of a, a reader. But I think that that's another important platform. Um, I'm not on Instagram, but I think that's another platform that people should be on. So there, I think we should use all the social media. I often think I would like to be more active. I mean, I I we we have as a as a miniature podcast, we have a next. Uh, handle and no, I try to mostly promote my work here at the podcast. I would like to do more because I, I, I'm like you, Amy. I'm more of a lurker, you know. I'm like looking at what other people are doing. I very rarely publish something original myself. I'm a little bit shy in that sense, but it's really I find it extremely hard to find the time. Um, I don't know. In their case, Akiko, you're very active. Have have. How have you managed or is there any any way that you find that makes it easier for you to, you know, fulfill your your all the responsibilities that as a, you know, a full professor you have, your lab, your many appointments, your many responsibilities, and still find the time to be a, you know, useful uh, contributor to to the discourse? Yeah, that's something that um, I actively have to, um, you know, secure some time window to 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 do this, this engagement because as you say Brenda it's uh, time consuming and I also um I'm very careful about what I tweet and and making sure what I say is based on science and you know to the to the extent that we understand it so um it it is a time commitment but I I still think it's important for us to be able to communicate um on these kinds of platforms when where many patients and many you know um general public are able to to hear what we have to say um but i do also want to bring up that it's not without consequence um we do get a lot of trolls and you know people commenting nasty things and um i i think i've developed very thick skin <laughs> over the over the course of pandemic but it still hurts so this is something, you know, uh, if people are very interested in going out there and, you know, um, posting things on social media, it's something that uh, one needs to be aware of and, and to take mm -hmm. care of yourself. And mental yeah. health is very important. And if you feel like it, you're being um, negatively impacted, just kind of take a break because it, it can get uh, a little bit intense. Yeah, you're right. Especially if you you have a high profile, yeah, you become a target. Uh, so, well, with those, I think with those um, words of warning, but I think that it's still, I, I would say that it's still worth it. Uh, and as I think you, you tried to um, convey is that for, it is in a way as a, as a group, as a, a responsibility, a scientist to bring this to the public. Uh, some of us, uh, you know, some members of the community do it more than others, but I think that in general, as a, as a general uh, group, we should be informing the public and sharing this and helping people understand, right? This is not, these are not easy things. So it's, they, you know, we are here to, to help as well. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today. 
uh, Dr. Amy Bernard from the University of Colorado, Dr. Akiko, Professor uh, Akiko Wasaki and Professor Amy Bernard, uh, Akiko Wasaki from Yale University. Uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X, formerly Twitter, at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or if you would like to suggest a guest. See you next time.